Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the two atomic bombs used on Japan that left a legacy of death, devastation, and the one persistent problem that was never talked about, radiation. Japanese survivors of those two bombings, known as Hibaksha, carry the legacy of that day, and so do their children. But what did it mean to grow up in Hiroshima or Nagasaki after the atomic bombings on August 6 and August 9, 1945? What does it mean to be a second-generation Hibaksha, the child of a survivor? Seventy-seven years after the bombing took place, how does that still impact a life? What is even known about what happened by young people today? In order to learn, it takes a native of Hiroshima, a university professor who is also second-generation Hibaksha, and she tells you, There are very few students who know about the atomic bombings and its consequences. Their understanding tends to be it's a horrible bomb. It's a big bomb. And we don't talk much about radiation exposure and its consequences. I would like to emphasize the consequences of radiation exposure and the atomic bombings are not just one big blast and there's no quote-unquote survival. It's just a destruction. And once you get exposed to radiation, you have to carry it for the rest of your life. And most likely, you have to worry about your kids and grandkids. So the consequences are multi-generational. Well, more than almost any other people on Earth, atomic bomb survivors, the Hibaksha and their children and grandchildren, continue to be haunted by and know within their hearts and histories all about that awful, terrible, nightmarish seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, for the 76th anniversary of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima on August 6 and Nagasaki on August 9, a very special interview with Yuki Miyamoto. She is a second-generation Hibaksha, a professor at DePaul University in Chicago, and an active presence introducing new generations of young people to the truths about the atomic bombings and its continued impact on survivors, especially the women, their children, grandchildren, and beyond. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than Andrew Cuomo can manage to come up with just now. All of it coming up 
in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August 9, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the nuclear hot zone of Ukraine, where that country accused Russian forces of launching rockets at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant two days in a row. The rockets launched on Saturday night struck near a dry storage facility where 174 casks with spent nuclear fuel are kept. This according to Energoatom, Ukraine's state-run nuclear power company. The company said in a statement, Apparently, they, meaning Russia, aimed specifically at the containers with processed fuel, which are stored outside next to the site of shelling. Three radiation monitoring devices were also damaged on Saturday, making timely detection and response in case of aggravation of the radiation situation or leakage of radiation from spent nuclear fuel casks currently impossible. Energo Adam went on, This time, a nuclear catastrophe was miraculously avoided, but miracles cannot last forever. On Friday, August 5th, Russia and Ukraine accused each other of shelling Europe's biggest nuclear power plant, Zaporizhia's six-unit plant, as fighting raged again at the crucial border area of the Donbass. Shells hit a high-voltage power line at Zaporizhia, prompting operators to disconnect one reactor, taking it down to only two active reactors out of the six. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Moscow was responsible and accused it of committing, quote, an open, brazen crime, an act of terror. Ukraine also said that Russian strikes against Zaporizhia could equate to the use of an atomic bomb. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken called Russia's actions around Zaporizhia the height of irresponsibility, accusing Moscow of using it as a nuclear shield in attacks on Ukrainian forces. And the International Atomic Energy Agency, the UN's purported nuclear watchdog, has called for an immediate end to any military action near the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, warning of a very real risk of a nuclear disaster. IAEA Chief Rafael Grossi said any military firepower directed at or from the facility would amount to playing with fire with potentially catastrophic consequences. Sean Burney, senior nuclear specialist with Greenpeace, gave an excellent interview to Amy Goodman for Democracy Now! And we will have a link up to that interview on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 581. Here in the U.S., in New York City, on August 2nd, the second day of the month-long non-proliferation treaty review conference at the United Nations, 11 were arrested for civil disobedience as a crowd of almost 200 people gathered to urge action on nuclear non-proliferation. While the non-proliferation treaty took effect in 1970, the number of countries possessing nuclear weapons has increased since then from 5 to 9, and the weapons continue to be manufactured, maintained, and researched. Ed Hedeman of the War Resisters League, one of the protest organizers, said, We want to disrupt nuclear diplomacy. We hope to be a disruptive influence. We'd like to have thousands of people sitting in front. That would be even more disruptive. But it's better to have one person there with a sign than no person there at all. On June 12 of 1982, New York City saw the largest protest in American history as an estimated one million people marched from Central Park to the United Nations demanding a nuclear freeze, a halt to the production, testing, and deployment of nuclear weapons. 
Of the 11 people arrested on this August 2nd commemoration, several had been arrested also in 1982. Now here's Linda Pence Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. It's time to wake up and smell the climate crisis. The U.S. Senate fancied it was doing just that when it passed its Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 late last Sunday and cheered itself on the Senate floor. But they only caught a whiff. The act does allocate about $370 billion towards lowering greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 to 40% below what they were in 2005. But the act is sadly only as good as the system allows, constrained by, as Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii described it, quote, the nature of getting a bill done that all of us can support. Given the daily evidence, it's mind-boggling to think that any senator who plans to keep on living on planet Earth and who has children and grandchildren would persist in denying the severity of the climate crisis in deference to the fossil fuel companies who pull their strings and pay for their yachts. But 50 Republicans voted against the act, even though it also contains billions for nuclear power and for new oil and gas leasing, three of their favorite things. They largely have their ally in Democrats' clothing, Joe Manchin, to thank for that, to whom the Democrats have to kowtow and capitulate to get anything done at all. Manchin's handwriting is also all over the $700 million in there for the production of high-assay, low-enriched uranium, which Bill Gates would need for his pointless, proliferation-friendly natrium small reactor design. HALU, as the fuel is known by its acronym, is currently manufactured almost entirely by Russia. Once Russia invaded Ukraine last February, Gates found himself in an awkward position. But for now, the billionaire will get his fuel paid for by us in the Inflation Reduction Act. However, making Halu in the US is putting the fuel cart before the reactor horse, as it's quite unclear, and in fact highly unlikely, that any of the so-called advanced reactor designs that need it will be ready to fuel up for decades, if at all. Halio also lends itself to nuclear weapons production because it consists of uranium enriched to a higher level than that used in current reactors and close to bomb-grade uranium. Much of the Halio manufactured in the US would be exported, thereby increasing the likelihood of nuclear weapons development in countries like Saudi Arabia. So while the Inflation Reduction Act will do some good things for climate, incentivizing energy efficiency measures and a transition to electric cars, it's a bit like those words I sometimes saw on my elementary school report card. Could do better if she tried. With Senator Manchin still on the Democratic side of the aisle and not enough of a majority to get things done without him, Democrats in the Senate will argue that they did try as hard as they could, and it's not them who need waking up. Which leaves the rest of us. If we can't change policy, then we need to change our policymakers. That will be our job this November. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. In Georgia, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has authorized Southern Nuclear Operating Company to begin fuel loading and operation at Vogel Unit 3. Vogel Units 3 and 4 are the first new nuclear units built in the United States in the last three decades. But these two new units are years behind schedule and billions of dollars over their original budget. And even the start date for Unit 3 has already been put back for the 26th time. 
We'll have several links up, one to Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education's terrific letter to Bill Gates, where he says to Mr. Gates, I believe you have crossed the line by leveraging your fortune to maneuver state governments and, indeed, the U.S. government to siphon precious taxpayer funds supporting your latest atomic contrivance in Wyoming. He's referring to the natrium-sodium-cooled fast reactor, still theoretical, and, as Arnie Gunderson points out to Mr. Gates, quote, your latest brainchild ignores 70 years of liquid sodium-based nuclear failure. It's a great read. We'll also have a link up to an article on the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant in Piketon, Ohio, entitled From Russia to Ohio to the Cancer Ward, and an accounting of everything that went wrong with the Nagasaki bombing mission, printed in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and still a harrowing and undertold story. In Japan, Tokyo Electric Power Company has started construction of the Fukushima water release facilities. And despite international objections, protests from Japanese fishing collectives and citizens, necessary permissions from the towns of Okuma and Futaba and Fukushima Prefecture itself have been given. TEPCO plans to construct an undersea tunnel necessary for releasing the treated water at a point only one kilometer off the coast and plans to have it in full operation, dumping 1.3 million tons of radioactively contaminated water from Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and before that, the Trinity Test in New Mexico. This was the start of what we came to call the Atomic Age, but there is no end in sight. Nuclear weapons, manufacturing, reactors, uranium mining, radioactive waste, accidents, so-called permissible radiation exposures. The list of nuclear dangers and disasters is as endless as plutonium, which remains dangerously radioactive for 240,000 years. Yet despite the known risks, this industry, the nuclear industry, perpetuates itself, making obscene amounts of money while threatening the future of the planet and of life itself. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat and why we are here. To help you understand what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We cover not only what the industry is up to, but how brave activists around the world are fighting back. And how any one of us, and that includes you, can take action to try and stop the atomic madness. At Nuclear Hot Seat... We're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories you can't find in mainstream media, and we provide them with context and continuity so you can understand the full picture. But in order to continue to do that, we need your help. And that's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. We make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. That's how you can help us with a donation of any size. And that's where you can set up a monthly recurring donation as well. As little as $5 a month. The same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. So if you value Nuclear Hot Seat and want to help us continue to do what we do, please do what you can do now. And know that however much you can help, you have my gratitude. Now here is this week's featured interview. There are many ways to commemorate the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, 
which killed 140,000 people outright, and Nagasaki, which killed 74,000 people immediately. And in both cases, there were many more, tens of thousands, who were sickened with radiation, and it continues to impact lives today. The true nature of the aftermath of that bombing is not widely understood, and it takes someone who has lived it to provide a detailed, nuanced telling of how Hiroshima and the bomb played out in the lives of the people who lived there and their offspring. Yuki Miyamoto is a second-generation Hibakusha, survivor of the atomic bomb, and an educator on nuclear history and issues. She earned a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago and teaches nuclear discourse and environmental ethics at DePaul University in Chicago. 2011's Fukushima nuclear accident urged her to examine environmental ethics, which has led to her most recent work, A World Otherwise, Environmental Praxis in Minamata. Miyamoto's current work is on the formation of post-war nuclear discourse, both in Japan and the United States. She has taken DePaul students to Hiroshima and Nagasaki since 2005, and has been appointed as Nagasaki World Peace Correspondent and Hiroshima Peace Ambassador. I spoke with Yuki Miyamoto on Thursday, July 29, 2021. Yuki Miyamoto, thank you so much for joining us here today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you so much for having, having me on this program. I'm a big fan of this. Tell us a little bit where you're from and your background. I'm originally from Hiroshima, and I was there until I graduated from high school, and I went to college outside Hiroshima, a different city in Japan, until I was there in Japan, until I came to the States at the age of 27 to come to the graduate school, the University of Chicago. And not knowing the history of the University of Chicago, which is that the place of the Manhattan Project. I felt so stupid because I wanted, even before coming to Chicago, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn why, you know, in Japan, especially growing up in Hiroshima, the atomic bombs are so inhumane weapons. And every time any country, any nuclear country conducted the nuclear test, the mayor of Hiroshima sent out telegraph saying that, please do not continue the nuclear tests and and then you know people demonstrated or people protest yet it kept going so i was always wondering why there are so the understandings of the atomic bombings are so different and so i wanted to learn about it so i knew what i want to do and yet i was kind of oblivious about the history of the university of chicago one of the things that I've discovered is that there is so much to discover that none of us has the full range of information because there's so much of it out there, so complex and so both frightening and saddening. Exactly. And then once you discover, you also discover everything is related, which is also scary, but also kind of an eye opening. Why didn't I know? Let's go back a little bit further into your background, because you refer to yourself as a second generation Hibakusha. Is that correct? Yes. What does that mean to you? And what does that mean in terms of your family's background? 
my mother was six years old at the time of the bombing, and she was only a mile away from the hypocenter. But fortunately, she was not injured. As far as I remember, she doesn't have any external scars, and she just doesn't tell me what exactly happened. But she wanted me to know about it at the very end of her life. So I asked her sister what had happened to her. That was much later. So she was there in 1945 at the age of six. And since then, um, as far as I know, I knew that she was in her 30s. She had some dizzy spells. And in her 40s, she had to get some blood booster kind of thing. She, um, her blood system was not working or producing proper blood cells. So she needed to get some help, some kind of IV to get uh, some boost in her blood production, which she had to take it every other week. And then eventually in her 50s, she got cancer and she passed away six years after her first diagnosis. Did she have children other than you? And were there any problems you were aware of in her ability to give birth? That's a good question. I have an older brother who is six years older than I am. And I'm not sure. I've never been told if there was any miscarriage or any kind of difficulties for her to conceive between him and me. But my brother knows a little bit more about her experiences of the atomic bombing. And I suspect that partly because simply she doesn't want to remember by retelling and revisiting her experiences. And although she was telling us that she doesn't remember. And another reason is that she also probably wanted to protect me from any kind of discriminatory treatment, especially women, Hibaksha women. They had a sometimes hard time in finding their spouses because people suspect that they are fragile, they are not able to give a birth to healthy kids. And especially earlier in the 40s, 50s, 60s, a uh, couple of decades after the war, still the culture, Japanese culture, having a son and handing down the family name, continuing family name was considered as considered important. And because of that reason, it was important to have a healthy woman so that they can produce healthy offsprings. So I think that might be the reason. In general, from your knowledge of the culture in Hiroshima and for the Hibaksha, was it considered an act of bravery for these women to give birth? Or was it luck or foolishness or just an attempt to return to normalcy and ignore the fact that the bomb had happened? Oh, I think that's probably a mix of feelings because giving birth being able to conceive is also a relief, I suppose, for women, especially who are concerned about their health. But also once they get pregnant, of course, the next step is that, am I able to bring a healthy child to this world? So that's also understandable. But I think that's a sign of normalcy, which they really hoped. 
and aspired. I've recently learned through research that I'm doing for a play that I've been writing that General MacArthur, when he brought the occupation forces into Hiroshima, he put the entire country under censorship, that Japanese people were not allowed to speak about what happened to them. You're nodding your head as we're saying this. What is your knowledge of that and how do you think that impacted your family and the culture at large? Actually, before September 2nd and the war formally concluded, actually the Japanese government placed the censorship because the government was afraid of demoralizing the people. If people knew that Hiroshima was completely obliterated and three days later Nagasaki was completely gone, just one single bomb, which would have demoralized the people Already they were exhausted. They were exhausted from the shortage of everything, food, clothes, and any kind of resources. So I guess for that reason, the Japanese government placed the censorship on Japanese media. And then that was taken over by the Allied powers, which actually took only first four years, meaning in 1949, this division of controlling information, uh, I think it's called the CDC. I'm forgetting what the acronym is for, stands for, but this was actually disbanded in 1949. Although Japan was still under occupation, which went until 1952. So this informs us that it's actually the censorship worked so well that people started censoring themselves in Japan. So there are a couple of um, books and many articles about how censorship worked, which was imposed, but also there was some kind of self-imposition on people in Japan as well. Now, we've talked about your parents and especially your mother and how this played out in her life. What about you? When did you become first aware of the fact that Hiroshima, which is where you're from, had had the bomb dropped on it? When I was growing up, I was born in 68. So growing up in the 70s, in my neighborhood, everyone has a family member or two who are affected by the bombing. So we are all second generation. So it was not necessarily a special thing for us. And, you know, when we go to downtown area, which is sort of close to the hypocenter, there was still, I wouldn't say houses. It's actually called the atomic bomb slum. Those Huts and small houses were lined up by the river and in the neighborhood. I remember that a woman who never wears short sleeves in summer. And back then, I didn't think anything. But now, come to think of it, she might have scars, keloid, or some people become very sensitive to the sun. And so she might have had that symptoms after exposure to radiation. And actually a friend of mine who is a second generation, she also had her face, wherever she was exposed to the sun, her skin, her body gets red and swollen. So she was not able to attend PE classes with other kids. What about you? How has this 
played out in terms of your physical life? Has it come to another generation or are you pretty much okay? So far, luckily, I do not have any symptoms or any illness I suffered so far. Those ones considered to be radiation induced. However, I was very aware, even though my mother never told me about her experiences, I was aware that I was a second generation. And partly because growing up in Hiroshima, as I mentioned earlier, everyone has a family members or relatives who was affected by the bombing in my generation and in that area. So it was not so rare or unusual. And also growing up at school, we had to go to school on August the 6th, the day of the bombing. And still, when I was, you know, maybe first or second grader, we had a couple of teachers who were hibaksha, and they sometimes invite another hibaksha friend, and she or he would tell us about their experiences on August the 6th. And also, we had books. Have you heard of Barefoot Gan, this graphic novel? That's a kind of a classic in Japan, but very graphic. And some people, very concerned about showing that graphic novel to little kids. But we had them in almost each classroom from the first grade. So we are very, in a way, maybe desensitized. But at the same time, it was a great education because I still, I'm still scared. I remember that I was very afraid of going to Peace Park and seeing the atom bomb dome, which is the kind of symbol in Japan of the atomic bombing. I was very afraid of just having a sight of it growing up. So during summer, we had to read a book. You know, you know there are a couple of books, recommended books that the kids should be reading during summer break. And one of them was this story about a second generation of a Hibaksha boy who got leukemia and passed away and now come to think of it you know most of us are second generations and reading this second generation boy is dying from leukemia I was thinking okay so this is something I should be prepared for and I don't know how to prepare for it but you know like somehow psychologically I was aware however at the same time I was not alone, right? As I said, everyone was somehow related to this historical event. So it was a very strange experience. You spoke of your psychology. How did your knowledge that you were second generation Hibaksha, that you were from Hiroshima and living in Hiroshima, how did that affect your thinking about your place in the world? My place in the world? That's an interesting question. That's very um, insightful because my first experiences was perhaps when I went to college and I was actually shocked outside of Hiroshima, August 6th is not a special day because if you go to Hiroshima or if you are in Hiroshima on August 6th, it's a very different time and space, right? For example, 
city-related facilities are often closed to just commemorate the event. And lots of people come to Hiroshima from many different places. And at 8.15, the, the bell is called and everyone observes a moment of silence. There are so many people, but also it's very quiet moment. It's, a, it's just one of the very special moments of the year. You cannot just dismiss it. So I was quite surprised. There was nothing in other cities, even in Japan. So that was my first realization that, you know, coming out of my friends are all second generations and coming out of that circumstances or that environment, this was actually a little bit different or special. And then even more so once I came to the United States. However, I'm always, I still am hesitant to tell people where I'm from because I've never met anyone who doesn't know Hiroshima or who has not ever heard of the city name. So everyone knows this small city in East Asia, which is good, but also I don't know how it's taken. And sometimes I made friends with people and talking. And then, so by the way, which city of Japan are you from? And I said, Hiroshima. And sometimes a person would say, oh, I'm sorry, but you know, that was in during the war and kind of justification I had to hear. And I just don't know how to deal with it. Should I stand up for my fellow Hiroshima Hibaksha? But I don't think I was well equipped to do so. And I just felt so isolated. Part of the reasons I wanted to come here to the States to learn how the bomb has been narrated, how the bomb has been understood, taught at school. So that was good experience. What have you found as to how the bomb is discussed here in the United States versus your experience growing up in Hiroshima? What's the difference? What do we do well or what do we do not so well? In Hiroshima, it is also changing especially those people who have the first-hand experiences. There are fewer and fewer people who can talk about experiences. So it's definitely changing. And I haven't been back to Japan for the last two years. So I don't know how it is now. But at least when I was growing up, The understanding is that this is such an inhumane, indiscriminate weapons. And we were puzzled why this has not been banned, whereas biological and chemical weapons were at least internationally agreed upon that it shouldn't be used. But until recent, uh, the UN nuclear ban treaty came into effect last year, it was not happening. So... I think people are still kind of wondering why this was not considered as bad or why this has been justified. And is this because of the generations? Once the generation who remembered or who fought for the the war and who were liberated 
from the bombing or who believed that the bomb ended the war swiftly. So it's because those people who believed that myth, we call it the myth because, you know, historians think that that was not the case. I came here and gradually, and especially I started teaching and learning from younger generations. It's actually not that obsolete. And good news is that more younger people don't think dropping the atomic bombs was justifiable, but still close to 50-50 in general. So good news is that the younger generations, their understandings are changing. But at the same time, interacting with my students, there are very few students who know about the atomic bombings and its consequences. Their understanding tends to be it's a horrible bomb. It's a big bomb. And we don't talk much about radiation exposure and its consequences. And especially for those people who are now with us and sharing their experiences with us, their lives after bomb, their lives are much longer than the lives they had before the bombing, right? Most of them were kids back then. So they had a difficult time in finding a spouse or not, not that marriage is the happiest thing, but taking into account the social pressure or women were uh, had a difficulties in just being independent financially, all those reasons. So because of those reasons that they must have had difficulties, anxieties about their conceptions, pregnancies, and their kids. And I know one Hibaksha whom I was friends with, she suddenly passed away this May, very suddenly. But she was also talking about those experiences, not just the bombing, but also how she felt sorry for her daughter, who actually was told at once that she couldn't have kids. Physiologically could not or should not because of possible mutations or birth defects? What I hear was that because of her blood disorder, she probably couldn't. So physiologically, she couldn't conceive. And if she did, if she was able to, it's not like totally impossible, but she would have difficulties. And if she was able to be pregnant, it might jeopardize her health. So that was what she was told, the daughter of my friend was told. And my Hibaksha friend was so devastated by this because she took it on her. She thought that it's because my experiences of the atomic bombing, my daughter is suffering from the consequences. So the second generation issue there. So those stories are not much known here as well as in Japan. So I'm, I'm concerned about the atomic bombing is just a big bomb so that, you know, we could quote unquote survive, but witnessing my mother's illnesses and her passing away, I don't think Hibaksha can tell that they could survive. Again, in the research I have been doing for my play, what has become very clear was that there was an intentional repression of all information 
about radiation as being the after effect of the bomb and the fact that it wasn't just this one big blast. There was an after effect that goes on for generation after generation after generation. And it's still not generally known because the information was so suppressed at the beginning Mm -hmm of the atomic age, as we learn to refer to it, that we've never been able to pick up with that information. And my belief is that's part of what drives the ongoing acceptance of the atomic bomb, because they think, oh, it's just a really big bomb without understanding the ongoing consequences from the radiation. I totally agree with you. And as you know, there was an ABCC being established after the bombing in 1946 in Hiroshima, 1947 in Nagasaki, Atomic Bombing Casualty Commission, which is not actually treating the Hibaksha, but they were collecting data. Now it's called the Radiation Effect Research Foundation and both Japanese and American governments are funding. But until then, it was the American institution. And the ABCC was the one which was gathering those kids or adults as well. And they were just collecting the data, um, which of course disappointed people in Hiroshima those Americans who dropped the bomb, they came and established this medical facilities. They understandably expected that they would receive some medical treatment, but it was not about treatment. It was really about using them as guinea pigs after the fact, just as was done in the Marshall Islands. Right, exactly. And at ABCC, of course, there was some concerns about internal exposure but that was not ever being systematically examined among the people, which I think, as you were saying, it's also related to this ignorance about consequences of the atomic bombing or in any kind of radiation exposure. Let's bring this forward to your work and what you're doing. You were obviously very influenced by your family's history, by your country's history, and what you had learned. What is it that you studied and what is it that you teach now? After I graduated from the grad school, I started teaching at DePaul University, which is also located in Chicago. My first quarter here, I taught the atom bomb discourse. So since then, for 17 years by now, I keep teaching this course, the atom bomb discourse, which examines how the atomic bombing has been understood. So that's exactly what I was trying to find out when I came here or before I came here. Um, So this was for liberal arts class. So anyone can take, and that's fun. Uh, students come from different disciplines and earlier on I still remember that one student who was very upset about this learning about the consequences of the atomic bombing and he stood up and he was kind of yelling at me this was so one-sided meaning what you were teaching was one-sided mm-hmm. 
that was kind of expected. So in my syllabus, I always had some kind of atrocities that the Japanese armies did, uh, Unit 731, and I was not able to go into the depth, but I definitely mentioned comfort women. So it's not like I'm I'm just singling out this atomic bombing as a war crime, but rather my focus was how this has been understood. And because of this sort of ignorance or cover up what we are suffering from, right? There are so many sites in the United States that people are suffering from radiation exposure, from uranium mines or nuclear tests, or just simply experimentation. Another one which I developed after Fukushima is a seminar called The Atomic Age. So this was not just about the Japanese atomic bombing and discourse around it, but rather from even radium girls, even before the Manhattan Project, how radiation or radioactive materials were considered or were taken or became consumer products. Students actually can relate to it, this sort of excitement, this new technology and new beauty products back then. And they were looking into some advertisement on their own research and they were kind of excited about this discovery and can relate to that excitement about technology and science. But of course, they know the consequences. So it's also fun to discuss that consumerism in the atomic age, not just the science or international affairs. Um, so we start with that pre-Manhattan Project era through the Manhattan Project and the Cold War and the post-Cold War nuclear accidents and uh, try to cover all nuclear issues. But of course, it's always like, oh, I could have talked about this or I could have invited this scholar or this activist. So it's always evolving. Well, get them to subscribe to Nuclear Hot Seat and they'll get updates every week. Exactly. Yeah. Since 2005, you have led groups of students to go back to Japan and to visit Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What has been their response when they actually are there and get to see and learn on the ground in Japan? Understandably, the students were nervous before going there. They were excited about going to Japan. Usually, my group has more or less 20 students in one group. And one third, I would say, they are just interested in Japan, anime and some, you know, culture, food, over there, music, cosplay. One third is Japanese language students. So they want to exercise their skills, their command of language once they get there. One third is not so much about Japan, but interested in the nuclear issues or international relations. So I I like this combination coming from different interests and disciplines. But those students who have some familiarity with Japanese culture, even so, they were kind of nervous going to Hiroshima and even more nervous stepping into the museum. They usually take a lot of time contemplating in front of each panel, each picture, each video, 
they were very serious about learning once they get into the museum, which was moving. You know, they were not just going through, walking through, chatting through the museum. They really tried to absorb the information. And did you see any changes in their understanding or their orientation towards nuclear and atomic weapons once they had gone through this experience? Definitely, definitely. Uh, So one thing which affected them was definitely going to the museum, learning more at first hand about this weaponry and the consequences. And, you know, what they are familiar, the images they are familiar with is usually the mushroom cloud or obliterated cities. There is no human soul. Most of them had never seen human tolls and consequences on the human body or consequences on the environment. So the actual destruction. So that definitely affects them, but also they were very moved by people who welcomed them. Because, you know, people in Hiroshima were very excited about having the young Americans to their place. Because there are so many places they could go. You know, we have this study abroad programs at DePaul, Paris, London, Argentina, Kenya. There are so many places they can choose. And they chose to come to Hiroshima and Nagasaki for two weeks. I think people in Hiroshima were very excited and wanted to interact with my students and they were very kind. Sometimes I feel like me too, including myself, we are so spoiled. (laughs) And that kind of human interactions, relationships, friendship, that also affects them as well. Every year when August 6th, the anniversary of the Hiroshima bomb and August 9th, the anniversary of Nagasaki come up, Is there anything in particular that you do to commemorate on those dates? I have attended this commemoration that a group of anti-nuclear groups and sometimes religious groups collaborated and they have this memorial at the Henry Moore's nuclear reaction sculpture in Hyde Park. I sometimes attend I have enormous respect for those people who make efforts to make this happen, to organize this commemoration. But I also like to stay home and be myself or being alone. I'm actually very grateful that people are commemorating it. But somehow being a part of it is not always comfortable to me. I think that's understandable given the fact that this is something that was very personal for you. But those of us who didn't have a personal experience of it need that external gathering and connection with others who understand at that time. And I'm glad you take time for yourself because sometimes that's the most important thing that we can do. If as a result of your history, your mother's experience, the studying you've done, the teaching that you've done, If you could deliver a message to the world that the world would actually listen to, what would you want to say? I love to fantasize that the world is listening to me. That that is wonderful. And if that happens, I would really say that I would like to emphasize the consequences of radiation exposure 
and the atomic bombings are not just a big one big blast and there's no quote-unquote survival it's just a destruction and once you get exposed to radiation that you have to carry it for the rest of your life and most likely you have to worry about your kids and grandkids so the consequences are multi-generational and that's only on the human side but also the environmental side as we know that some radioactive nuclei its half-life is 24,000 years or more so it's definitely multi-generational. Yuki Miyamoto I'm so grateful that you were willing to share some personal aspects of your life, as well as what you do professionally to put forward a balanced understanding of what the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki meant to a generation that is many generations removed from it. I'm grateful that your students are going to go out into the world with this expanded understanding. And for that and so much else, I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much for having me. I've been listening to this program every week. So this is a great honor for me to be here. Thank you. That was professor, educator, and second-generation Hibaksha, Yuki Miyamoto. We will have links up to her work on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 581. Activists, activists, With this being the anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we will have links up to several long, specific, extremely interesting articles that we've come across that I think you might find of interest to give a deeper and an alternative view on what is commonly known about those two bomb drops. In addition, the latest edition of Nuke Info Tokyo has been uploaded. We will have a link to that. There's a new short video, Message from Hiroshima, narrated by George Takei. It takes a unique look at the lives and culture of the city before the first atomic bomb was ever used. That will be up on the website as well, Nuclear Hot Seat number 581. And condolences to our community on the passing of Father Carl Cabot. He was a longtime member of the Plowshares movement, and since joining the inaugural Plowshares 8 action in 1980, he spent over 17 years in prison for multiple direct actions for nuclear disarmament. He and sister activist Helen Woodson received the longest prison sentences ever given for a U.S. anti-nuclear action for their part in the 1984 Silo Pruning Hooks action, 18 years and Carl spent nearly 10 years behind bars for that action. He was a beloved, respected, and often funny supporter of the anti-nuclear movement, and he will be list. Father Carl Cabot died on August 4th, 2022, and he was 88 years old. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 9, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.com, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, the Nuclear Resistor, ncronline.org, Nuke Information Tokyo, cinemalibrestudio.com, nasdaq.com, marianwildart.wordpress.com, newsweek.com, 
Reuters.com, BBC.com, DemocracyNow.org, WashingtonPost.com, CNN.com, Independent.org, San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace, Power-ENG.com, SP.M.GG.com, ClimateAndCapitalMedia.com, LibertarianInstitute.org, TheBulletin.org, Tokyo-NP.CO.JP, DECN.CO.JP, GlobalTimes.CN, PowerMag.com, Bloomberg.com, NWEmail.CO.UK, Bloomberg.com, CNBC.com, Fair.org, CarlGrossman.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. And thanks to all of you for listening. A big shout out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. So if you would care to join in them and never miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, it's easy to get it delivered via email. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show with a little bit of copy about some of the other stories that are involved. You can also sign up for us any place you get your podcast. Just add us onto your list. We'd love to have you with us every week. Now, we need your help. So if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate these weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for that red Donate button, click on it, help us out any way you can. We will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi at Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that Masako Wada, Assistant Secretary General of the Japan Confederation of A-Bomb and H-Bomb Sufferers Organization, said, We Hibakusha are not merely survivors of the atomic bombing. We are the ones who have been taking action to save mankind from this crisis. As citizens of Earth, please learn, think, speak, and act to abolish nuclear weapons. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.